Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika. A podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators. Where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down. And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Hey, everybody. Good afternoon. We're gathering for the FICA. Again, we're recording this a little bit later than we normally do. Normally, we have this during our pre-lunch break, but today we're actually past lunch on the East Coast. And I think uh, for Kristen and Tina, you all are probably maybe still have some snacks. So what have you bought from snacks today? Well, I'm feeling kind of fancy. I have this found its way into my house somehow. I did not purchase it, but there's this water that has it's infused with blackberry and lemon essences. So I am going to try that. Oh, I love that hint water, but I call it homeopathy water. It's got the essence of blackberries. <laughs> Less than Avogadro's number of moles of blackberry, but it still tastes delicious. <laughs> um, I have um, an okay coffee, but in a lovely mug that my um, educational support well, I call her my Navy SEAL. She's former Navy supporting education here. She's fantastic. She gave me When Life Hands You Lemons Make Lemonade mug for my birthday. So that makes my coffee taste better. And another colleague who just got back from Europe and brought in some lovely European chocolates. And it would hurt her feelings if I didn't have just one. And, and I actually have an entire apple. I have apple slices and water, but I left them both in the refrigerator and started the recording before... Um, I got them, so th those will await me later. I can see those headlines now. <laughs> Jeff Kane eats entire apple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't have actually anything today. I just got done eating lunch. I'm actually here at, at the University of Kentucky participating in the merit program this week, and we just got done with lunch, so I didn't bring anything with me today uh, to snack on because, well, I'm full, so... Anyway, I know all of us are looking forward to in July to the AACP annual meeting in Grapevine, Texas. We may not be looking forward to Grapevine, Texas, but uh, it'll be hot in Grapevine and, and at the Gaylord where we'll be trapped for the entire meeting. But uh, nonetheless, I think everyone's looking forward to seeing each other face to face for the first time in a couple of years. I know I am. And uh, yeah, so are there particular sessions that you're really looking forward to, things that you're participating in? I I'm just curious what you all are doing and looking forward to. Well, Jeff and I are involved in the teacher seminar and looking at sort of a less not loss approach and looking at, you know, the curriculum, our policies, our lifestyle, um, how we approach education. I'm really, really excited about that. And shout to my Monash colleagues who um, won one of the Innovations in Teaching Award, and I'm looking forward to gathering with them. I haven't seen my Australian friends in almost a year. And really the community and the fellowship. I mean, that's what I've, that's what makes it worth the biodome. <laughs> yeah, I honestly haven't looked much at the programming yet. I, I've been thinking about preparing my own stuff, which means that I'm, I'm doing a roundtable and I'm 
um, in the literature on imposter syndrome right now because we're going to be making a connection between that and identity formation. So fun preparing and not yet to the point of being able to actively anticipate it. So I think I'm exactly like Kristen. I haven't looked at the programming yet, just trying to get all my own stuff together, make sure that I'm ready and, and looking forward to actually seeing people and talking to them for the first time in, I don't know, several years. It seems like a decade. I know it's not been that long, but sharing an almond or two with good friends and (laughs) (laughs) well um so obviously i get to as the aacp president this is this is my meeting for for doing that and so i get to preside over and i have to attend a lot of receptions and other award program but i'm looking forward to it i mean again this is the first time we were gathering in two years and I think it's really important to get people back together and have that sense of community again. Anyway, Jeff proposed today's topic, so I'm going to turn it over to Jeff to kind of lead us into this. All right, so today we're going to talk about student disengagement or student engagement, but primarily the disengagement piece. Uh, This idea came about, one, is there have been several articles published recently within, I would say recently within the last month to two months from Chronicle of Higher Education and New York Times from faculty members who have uh, themselves witnessed and have had colleagues share with them that you know, the last year, especially, but maybe in the last year, two years of noticing students disengaging from the educational process. And uh, I'm going to read, uh, we'll probably put the the actual articles in the show notes, but I'm going to read one sentence from an article out of the New York Times by Jonathan Malesic, and it's Tina shared this one, college students are not okay. By several measures, attendance, late assignments, quality of in-class discussion, they performed worse than any students I had encountered in two decades of teaching. They didn't even seem to be trying. So I think that, you know, that may be on the exaggerative side of things, but in my own teaching, I have noticed very similar types of things for the first time that I haven't seen in my previous years of teaching. So just to getting us started with with this discussion today, have you all noticed this or have had colleagues share with you uh, a perception that students are disengaged? And, and when I say students, we're talking, you know, a, the big general student, obviously not all students, but as the aggregate, do they seem to be disengaged? When I think about this, I don't know that they are disengaged in the way that I think of engagement as as a state of mind. I think that they are busy. I think that they are conflicted. I think they have a lot of stressors, but I don't know that as a state of mind, they are any different in their commitment to the profession, in their energy. It's just being divided and pushed in different directions. Um, I would say a couple things. One, we have a lot of local discussion about this and, and some of the folks that I work with, fantastic people, but they they perceive this as specific to their course, you know, our and I'm like, oh no, 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 this is a wider conversation that's happening. Faculty experience a curriculum through their course. Students experience a curriculum across courses. And so I also think it's highlighting that, you know, despite perhaps our, our best wishes, the connections between how we're trying to engage them may actually be either causing dissonance that we don't understand 
or modeling for them something that then we're asking them to work against. I do that, that New York Times article that Jeff referenced and we'll have it in the show notes has one of the best images that I've ever seen in, in the New York Times. It takes basically the Harvard logo, which usually says Veritas, truth, and changes those words to very, very tired. Yeah, I, I'm first, let me state that I do feel like the level of participation and preparation has declined over the last decade or so, and I think has been exacerbated by the pandemic and the way we had to deliver things, right? And But that, that decline has, has not rebounded in any way after returning to live classes. And I'm not sure what the causes. I mean, we can, we can talk about the causes of it, but I do feel that there's less interaction, both with me personally and with each other in the classroom and the level of preparation that people have prior to coming into class seems a bit less and less self-directed than I would like to see. But I do think we should talk about engagement in several different ways. Um, you know, one of the articles that that will also be in the show notes kind of classifies engagement as being participating in the academic and social extracurricular activities, kind of this behavioral engagement. And I think there's been some decline in that, at least from what I've witnessed, uh, an emotional engagement, feeling included, feeling belonging. Like I think that's declined a little bit. I think that's primarily from the pandemic and then a, a personal investment or taking ownership in the learning process. And I think that has that has declined, and that's a cognitive engagement, if you will. And so I think on all fronts, there's been some degree of disengagement, perhaps not as profound as we'd see in general undergraduate education, but maybe they're the canary in the coal mine for us, because it may be that's the tsunami we're going to face another four years from now is these very disengaged students. We're starting to see some of it, but maybe that's what we're heading towards, even for us. Because people choose pharmacy, obviously, for a reason, and they're you know excited to become a pharmacist, so they have that intrinsic motivation. But I, I have seen a decline personally. Stuart, I like what you're doing in kind of parsing apart the different kinds of of engagement, and I think sometimes we we lump a lot of things together, and then our conversations get very confusing. You know, sometimes when I'm hearing faculty talk, it's more about I don't have their attention but they use the word engagement. They're not engaged, but it's that they're not paying attention or that they're not involved to the same level that they were. And we label it engagement. And those are really separate kinds of, of issues. And engagement is this, this state of mind. And I often can't look at a student and know if they are engaged. I might guess based on an expression on their face, but when we understand it as a, a state of mind, it adds a whole new level of complexity to understanding it. So one of the things, one of the few things that I remember from my graduate courses from, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe about engagement was just like Kristen said, there's engagement with content. There's engagement with the instructor. There's engagement with uh, other students. And then there's engagement with, and I don't remember exactly what the term is, but we'll say the educational process. So that being being parts of clubs. And so we could talk about each one of those separately, but. Well, I might have something helpful. Can we, can we split it up by academic engagement? 
which is is replete in the in the undergraduate literature. There's a lot of focus on like, what is my energy towards my studies, towards my classes? You know, am, am I attending to the work that's expected of me in order to progress, in order to earn your grades? You know, so there's the academic engagement, which I think we all kind of clearly understand. But then there's for us in pharmacy and in the health professions, there's professional engagement. And to what degree am I engaged with my profession as a student in the health professions? How, how do I feel? Do I feel this sense of belonging? Do I feel a sense of connectedness to others in this profession? Am I growing into that role? And I, I think those distinctions can be helpful, especially for us in the, because we want both, right? And they both lead to good things, but we may need to influence them differently. Yeah, and I, um, KJ, I totally agree with you. And I, I was thinking about sort of what I hear versus what I feel versus what I read. You said the mix between engagement and attention. I sometimes hear a little bit of an engagement and entitlement mix being confused. And I, you know, go back to that Jeff and Frank Romanelli and Kelly Smith's paper about academic entitlement, which was pre-pandemic. And then I also think about um, a paper that one of my colleagues at Monash and um, some folks at UNC did together about where they triangulated heart rate, students reported engagement in class, and somebody sort of watching their engagement. And that, again, that's pre-pandemic, that almost a third of the time, even when we thought they were engaging, they were shopping on Zappos, man. (laughs) So this feeling of they're not engaged has changed. All of us have described something about that, a feeling of a change. It feels different, whether it's in the face-to-face or in the virtual classroom, but how we measure that, how we describe that, and how important that is for what's, as Stuart says, what's coming next. Yeah. So I think you bring up a really important, a critical issue, which I think is part of why we sense the engagement is down, and that is technology. I, I really do, uh, and because they're distracted by it. And that level of distraction, when you can't attend to something, you can't engage in it, right? So if your attention is someplace else, and I, and I, I also believe, just because I see in my own son, and I see it in a lot of other younger people, that their attention span to be present with something for a a lengthy period of time is reduced. And that has resulted in us feeling like they're not engaged in stuff. And so I think it is an attention problem. Yeah, I I think that's, that is one of the key sources of it. And, And it's not just our students, by the way, it's all of us. It's our colleagues, you know, it's affecting all of us, but I think our students and this next generation that's hitting us has grown up with it. And so their attention is even more diminished than, for example, people in their late 20s or us who are more mature adults who didn't grow up with the technology. I think so. I think it's affected them. I think it's a more of an attention problem that's led, led to disengagement. And the pandemic had made it worse because we forced them to be in environments where they're all technology all the time. Yeah. So Stuart, so that, yeah, I think some of the authors and some of the articles that I've read have mentioned that this may have been coming and things that happened during the pandemic being remote classes, relaxed standards in terms of classroom attendance, relaxed 
maybe pre-relaxed standards on what would be expected in like online discussions. So with students just, you know, keeping their cameras off and not really talking or engaging in that. And then the mental health issues that have been bubbling for a few years, all of them converged. And then when we came back to classes, uh, for many or most of us, there were masks. So that that's another piece of friction in terms of engaging with others when you can't see facial expressions, you can't see the emotions behind it. And it's maybe just harder to talk if you already don't want to talk. And now you have to talk louder uh, for people to hear you. So all of those things kind of, so it may have been coming. It's just the the pandemic and the things that happen uh, exacerbated it. So w- one of the articles, and now I'll go back to that one with Jonathan Malesic. So what do we do about getting students back to the levels of engagement speaking, you know, probably talking engagement again of the academic engagement of discussing, completing assignments, coming to class and his suggestion. And he acknowledged that, yes, there are our needs, uh, mental health needs and, you know, losses because of the pandemic that those need to be given care. But his suggestion was we need to tighten the standards back again. And, what has happened is, you know, when standards get loose, students fall out of maybe the habit of what it, of what's expected in a college academic environment and what's expected in terms of preparation and um, coursework and discussion and all of that. And so that was, you know, his suggestion. What are your thoughts on, on that? Do we need to tighten up again versus the uh, rather relaxed mode that many of us have stayed in for various reasons? Uh, now we're into the meat of it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what to do? I mean, yeah, to me, this um, this is an issue of how engagement interfaces with well-being. And I think the answer to, to the question of should we tighten things up is it depends. And it might depend on your classroom, yes, which is how we tend to think about things, cohorts as a whole, classroom as a whole, curriculum as a whole. Um, But if we think about it from a student perspective and somebody starts dialing up the expectations, perceiving, you know, like it it was flexible, now it's not flexible. I had options, now I don't have options. Timeline didn't matter, now now it does. You know, so we're being perceived as dialing things up and they're struggling. If they are struggling and then we push them harder, I don't know that we get what it is that we're aiming at. And we may be in a place where we need to spend more time and attention on getting people out of struggling to some kind of baseline. And that might be juggling too many jobs because you're afraid to disappoint an employer and you're covering for all the technicians. Like there's some real um, challenges that students are facing that until they can unburden themselves from some of that or get some support for some of that, changing the academic expectations is, I think, just going to make things worse. But we're not used to dealing with all that life stuff. And there's not a lot of time for that, right? So to create time or even space for that to happen, whether we're choreographing it or working with, you know, someone else to choreograph it, they still need the time to do that. I think a little bit about, um, have you guys ever seen that film, um, WALL-E? Put it on your list. You, you, will, you will not regret watching WALL-E. And it's very family friendly. So 
lovely music and but but one part is you know there's uh, not to be a you know spoiler alert but there's a point where they're all sitting around just basically drinking these milkshakes or you know nutrient they're getting all the nutrients that they need to stay alive watching this virtual reality and you know technically they are alive but it takes an event for them to realize that they're not really living and that they might risk a few things Maybe they don't get those delicious milkshakes and the VR goggles and everything. And I think we're almost at that point of, you know, okay, we're, we're in the compensated heart failures part. It, they, we don't know how unhealthy we are because all these other mechanisms are, are, have been kind of protecting it, making it seem like it's okay. And this is the point where we're going to say, okay, if we want a different outcome, if that I'm thinking about the trajectory that Stuart's talking about, then we're going to have to change how we're doing things and be open to a different way of doing things. Yeah. So if, if technology is part of the crux of the issue, which I do think it is part of the crux of the issue, I don't know how we, I mean, this is a societal thing as much as it is just within our curriculums in our schools, but how do we address it effectively within our schools? Because I don't see it being addressed at a societal level. Um, I think it's a tough nut to crack. Yes, I do think students are, like they feel like they have no time to do everything, but when you really analyze, and this is true of faculty, what they're doing, they're consuming a lot of time on things that are low value their attention is placed on a lot of things and it's, and then, then they don't feel like they have the time and in, in space in their life to do other things because they're on YouTube and gaming and so on. You know I mean? I don't have the time to do those things. Well, yeah, you do. It's just like, you're just sucked into this vortex over here and you don't realize it. The other part that we probably can have influence in is um, being more proactive in our relationships with students uh, the pandemic has made it more difficult, and and I think even we are having finding it more challenging for us. Like, how do we engage with students? And they f- may never really had faculty really engage with them before. But it was it used to be commonly students would stop by my office and do things. And maybe it's because I'm old, but I just have a sense that students just don't come around and and engage with you and chat with you and after class and just talk with you. And that just does not happen nearly as much as I used to experience it. And I don't think it's just me being older and intimidating. I think it is a general thing that's going on. Yeah. And so, Stuart, that's actually one of the things that brought it to mind for me is typically, so I teach in the spring. And so typically I would have in a week's time, two to five students would stop by my office at some point in time to ask something where it's after class this past semester that I taught. So I had two to five weeks. I had two the entire semester. And I also added an additional Zoom office hours just as a flexibility thing. I had two students take me up the entire semester. So I had, well, I had four instances. Let me say it's four instances with two students. That's it for the entire semester. And that's such a dramatic change from three years ago. So you know, one of the things I've, I've tried to break down here is in our attempts to uh, mitigate issues with with COVID and being able to pivot if we had to switch to online instruction, 
we reduced the number of days that students are actually on campus and we kept them in the cohort. So like the first year students are going to be here Mondays and Wednesdays primarily in all their classes. And, and students are not on campus as much and they are not st- staying around. I think one of the other things that has come out is, is work and jobs. Uh, and looking at some of the data, our students are working more hours than way more hours than in times past, or at least many students are working the equivalent of, you know, really almost a full-time job. And and speaking with one of the students at the end of the semester, one of the students told me that their employers know, somehow they know, when they students are not on campus in class. So although we've given them time off to be able to do stuff to study, the employers are pressuring them to come in and work, particularly now with the shortage of everything. So you know, we're giving them time away so that they can be mentally healthy, yet then that is being forced into work that is causing more stress. And the lack of not being on campus has done, like Stuart said, it's the relationships with and among faculty are challenging if you're not here. And also with the other students, you know, our organization membership and participation is down you know, just it's just you're not around your peers, you're not around faculty, and so there's some isolation effects that go, that are maybe happening as well. Jeff, you know, you do um, in another vein, you do a lot of work in, um, you know, with technology, and I'm always thinking about that. You know, what in my life can I convert to grayscale, not just my phone screen, but so that it's not distracting me, and what can I make sure that I keep in full color, so it is, you know, getting my attention, and I wonder how can we use behavior change strategies to at least, you know, they're adults, they get to make a choice, but to, instead of making this look like this is in color and this is in black and white, how do we use that same principle across the instructional model? Right. So how do you make the in-class talking to the professors, coming to student organizations, being uh, on campus and communicating, just being in a community, make that be the bright enticing thing versus the um, I'm just going to watch it via zoom or do the recording and then spend my other, you know time at home because I don't have to drive into campus and, and all of that yeah um, I don't I obviously don't have an answer for that but <laughs> that's uh, an appealing concept and it's a nudging it's like how do you nudge so that's the classic classic definition of nudging of they have the uh, freedom to do whatever they want but making the things that we want them to do be the most appealing versus the things that maybe are detrimental. Yeah. It's challenging because we know human behavior is that we often make short term decisions about things that in the long run are not healthy for us. I mean, you know, you think about diet and exercise and all sorts of things that it takes a certain amount of discipline and habit making to get us to do things in the short run that accumulatively has a long-term benefit. But in the short term, it doesn't look appealing compared to just staying at home and watching a video because I can still get a good grade, right? Um, And so how do we do those habit formations? Um, Maybe we need to spend a bit, a, a lot more time talking about it. Or because they're young and their brains aren't fully formed, that we need to design some things that are actually some things that are forced. Um, I don't know. I mean, they're they're paying a heck of a lot of money. I, I just don't know what the balance is because I, I don't want to take autonomy away, but I'm not sure I can create something that's so enticing in the short run that will help you develop habits. 
because uh, I see that with my own patients trying to lose weight or even my own self, right? <laughs> you know, it's hard. If someone forced me to eat a certain way, I'd probably be a lot healthier person, frankly. But, but that, you know, as Jeff's saying, this nudging and making it slightly easier for them to make the right choice. They still have autonomy, but we're making it slightly easier for them to make the right choice. And this is going to link back to, you know, how do we evaluate success? And right now it's grades and, you know, they, if they can make the grade and our system is designed for that, not necessarily to learn to be good citizens of the world. Are we going to university to learn these facts? Are we going to university to learn to get a job? Is it about employability? And it's probably all of those things. Yeah. And how do we value not just the academic progress and the academic attainment of our students, but also value the professional engagement. You know, I, I love the conversation here and, and the idea about turning things into color and, and making them attractive and developing habits. But I want to circle back to community. The, the pandemic definitely altered our sense of community, particularly for students coming in and not being able to establish community. And engagement, you know, we know from the research involves belonging and connectedness. And so, Jeff, I'm not surprised people aren't coming by your office because what opportunity have they had to establish that relationship and feel comfortable in that relationship with you and with even their colleagues? And until we build belonging and connectedness, I don't think we're going to see big changes in engagement either. Yeah, so I I think that 100%. You know, I would see students in, in in the atrium, in the hall, that's just enough to say hi or whatever. That's just enough to sort of break the ice to help them feel comfortable. There was none of that this year because they weren't staying around. And if they were, they all had masks on and I had a mask on and you couldn't tell, you know, an eye contact if someone was open to communication or not. So, yeah, that that did not uh, occur at all. And that that community piece was also super evident to me with students that are that they were second year students this year so they their first year was entirely online and i we have a community service learning course and so we have groups of 10 students and they're assigned a mentor and they're doing that stuff well this group didn't have that community that first year they didn't know each other it took until the really the end of this second year before when we were having our discussions and our projects that there was actually communication among each other. I was thinking like, I don't, we're not going to get anywhere with this because they, you know, one would talk to me and the other one would talk to me and they were just talking, there was nothing in between. So they didn't build a community. So they didn't have any community themselves. Is that a long-term effect just missing that one year? So our university made a, a, a kind of controversial decision, I think, to when we did return to class, this wasn't for the School of Pharmacy, this was for the undergraduate university, that all classes had to return to the classroom in attendance. Uh, was not mandatory, but there was no other way that the material would be delivered. In other words, if you did not deliver it prior to the pandemic, in a way that was online, you could not, you were verboten to do it that way. In other words, it was, we're returning to classroom. And you're going to teach it the way you did before the pandemic. And that is to get people in community into the classes that you're not giving them an option to opt out of class. Um, now, they can choose not to attend class. That's their choice. But then they're going to miss out on the material because it's not available to them in any other way. Um, and I, 
I'm actually, I, at first I thought that's crazy, that's stupid, we should be giving people more options, but I'm, I'm increasingly believing that spending time together is critically important. And once you make an option to allow people to do it in alternative ways, they will select it because that's what they're accustomed to. That's what they want. They don't want the extra burden of travel. And then the short, that's a short-term decision, which in the long term is detrimental to them. And I don't think we should give them that option until they've created a sense of community. And after that, then we can give them more options. Because I think it's much easier to engage with each other after we've already had a sense of community. Like I do it with colleagues all the time, but I already know them, right? It, it's a little different than trying to formulate relationships completely at a distance. You need time together, and then you can move to that. That's my thinking. But that is exactly the opposite. And I'm old, but I, and so I wasn't really active in the online dating scene, but it's exactly the opposite, right? They're saying get to know each other online before you have a, you know, a real life in-person relationship. And I wonder if that dissonance of other things that they're doing, you know, they World of Warcraft, whatever the video game they're playing, they're developing that community first. We would do it that way, you know, make a human community and then go virtual everything else in their life might be do a virtual community first and then have a human relationship. I, I don't know. Well, but, but I think the point is they do need to develop community, right? So we either go one way or the other, but we'd be very purposeful developing a community of the students in an online environment. And then we do face it or we, we say, come together. We know how to develop community and it naturally occurs when you're around people. I mean, it, it, it just does. I mean, you can't have a, a, you know, a healthy family relationship if you never spend time together. Human beings need to have some connection with each other. And it's actually quality time spent with one another that makes that possible. And if we don't create opportunities for that quality of time to occur, because they're always off campus doing their own thing, doing their own thing in their own way, it's just never going to develop. Yeah. Wow. I'm sitting here thinking about how this conversation has been about students and addressing disengagement and all the tangle of problems that we have to unravel to try and solve this. And part of it that we haven't talked about yet is the new skills for faculty. Because a post-pandemic faculty person now is, you need to think about a lot of things that we didn't think about in the past. Uh, well, I think we have come to the end of our episode. <laughs> and uh, I, actually, I hope we do follow up with this. Uh, there's a few episodes that we'd love to follow up in the course of this year. We, I think we need to get back to uh, grades as a measures of, of performance and how do we do that. And then talk a little bit more about faculty and faculty engagement and how to help faculty to learn how to engage students better than what we've done in the past. You know, I think those are two great topics I hope we can return to. But we're we're done with our break, our FICA break here today. So it's great to see you all. Hoping to see you all at, I will see all of you at the AACP meeting. And I hope many of our listeners will be there as well. Bye, everybody. See you all next time. Bye, guys. And watch Wally if you haven't. You'll really like it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. 
You can share your reactions on Twitter at PharmacyFika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash pharmacyfika. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir. Au revoir.